We're going to dig in this morning to the parable of the weeds and the wheat. In chapter 13, verse 24 through 30, Jesus gives the parable. And then you skip a little bit and you get to verse 36 through 43. And when he gave the parable, he was speaking to the crowds. But then when you get to verse 36 through 43, you get this sort of backroom conversation with just the disciples, sort of a private conversation with the disciples and Jesus. And they ask him about the meaning of the parable that he taught to the crowds. And it's like Jesus, just for a moment, pulls back the curtain and he lets them take a look into eternity. So he gives them a revelation of eternal things. And man, we need that. We need that so badly. We, th- we get so caught up, right? In our life and our things and even legitimate problems, but our little problems. And we really need the Lord to grab that curtain, yank it back, and let us peer for just a little bit into eternity. And when you do that and you see it and your heart is gripped by eternal things, it changes everything about your life. And so let's lean in as as the Lord does this and... And let's pray that the Lord would pull back the curtain for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Your word is beautiful, glorious to us. Lord, we want it. We want to come to your word like nourishment to our souls. Please, Holy Spirit, feed us. I pray, God, that you would give us this supernatural ability to lean in and hang on every single word that is read from your God-breathed word. And I pray, God, that you would address us in all the ways that we need, even things we don't realize we need. Holy Spirit, that you would help us. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin by looking at the parable itself, the parable to the crowds. Now, we're about to read verse 24, so if you get your eyes on it, verse 24 through 30. Now, like I said, he's speaking to the crowds here. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly in verse 24, but you'll notice as we keep reading in a moment, That it's going to say he stepped away from the crowds and he had the private conversation, which insinuates that what we're about to read, he's speaking out to the crowds. So let's go after the plain sense, not the interpretation, not the meaning, just the plain sense of this parable. Start in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and and went away. 
So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, verse 24 tells us this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And that's the only little bit, only little tiny bit of interpretation or meaning that Jesus gives the crowds. The only little bit they get. This parable is about, verse 24, about the kingdom of heaven. This parable is about a man, if you're just trying to get the plain sense of it, it's about a, a man who sowed good seed in his field. And he sowed wheat. This good seed is wheat that he sowed in his field. But then, it says an enemy came along uh, when the man's servants were asleep. Think about it. And an enemy comes along and his enemy sowed weeds, weeds in his field, right there among his wheat. The enemy sowed weeds. Now, this was a malicious act to try to ruin the field of this man that he hated. This was an enemy trying to maliciously ruin someone's field. One person called it agricultural sabotage. Now, the, the weed that's referenced here is specifically darnel. If I'm saying that right. Just looking for some head nods for my agricultural guys. And the scientific name is uh, Lolium timolentum. And I literally only said that for my weed warrior brothers that are around. Just to impress them a little bit. And this was a weed that resembled wheat. It literally was called a false wheat or a bastard wheat. That's what it was called oftentimes. Now, one question, is this a common thing? Like, is this a common thing where you would, an enemy would take weeds and, and secretly plant them and the, the person that he hates plant them in their wheat field? Is that a common thing? And it's interesting it was a common enough occurrence that there was actually a Roman law that, that made it a crime to, for, the, for the sake of revenge to go and, and secretly plant weeds amongst somebody's wheat for the, for the sake of revenge. So it was actually, it, it was at least common enough to be in the law. One commentator wrote this. He said, this weed's grains were poisonous so that to have to have these weeds mixed in with the wheat renders the crop commercially useless as well as potentially harmful that the weeds in 
with the wheat. So let's summarize the passage. The owner, the owner of the field sows the good seed, the wheat. The enemy secretly sows destructive seeds. Now, the, the servants don't know what happened, right? Remember that? They asked that question. What happened? I thought you sowed good seed. Well, the, the, the owner of the field knows. He says an enemy's done this. And then the servants don't know what to do. What, what, this doesn't seem right. What do we do about this? Do you want us to go gather up the weeds right now? And, and the owner knows what to do. He says, no, not right now. Leave, leave it as it is now until the harvest. And at the harvest... It'll all be sorted out, and the weeds will be burned, and the wheat will be gathered up into my barn. So in this present time, the weed and the wheats grow together in the field, and at harvest time, it'll all be made right. It'll all be sorted out. Now, this is what Jesus gives to the crowds, okay? Uh, no explanation. No interpretation is given. To the crowds, Jesus just gives this parable, and if you keep reading, he just moves on to another one. Now, just, just by way of reminder, this was a part of Jesus' judgment on these crowds that had rejected him, rejected him, rejected him. They had been given plain truth, and they rejected it again and again and again. And the scripture teaches us in this chapter that these parables to the crowds with no explanation is meant to be a judgment to them to hide the truth. And so that's what happens in this parable. Now, I want us to go to the explanation. I hope you understand the parable itself. Now I want us to go to the explanation of this parable. Look at verse 36. Now what we have here is a family conversation. That the, the, the parable was given to the crowds, but here comes the family conversation in the house with just the disciples, his spiritual family. Look at verse 36. It says, um, Then he left the crowds. So he was speaking it to the crowds. But then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now I love that. I love it that these disciples had this sort of um, this sort of access to Jesus. They, they're, they're alone with him now. Jesus, we heard what you said about those parables. Can, can you explain that to us? I love that. This is a little, you get the family secrets. You get the family uh, conversation. This is a reminder to us that when you become a Christian, you don't get smarter. You just get access. Access to the source of all wisdom. You do, when you become a Christian, you don't get uh, uh, you know, biologically more intelligent. You just get access to divine intelligence. You get access to Christ by his spirit, through his word. You get to know him and know the family secrets. It's a sweet little reminder here in verse 36. And Jesus, we know this from, from earlier in Matthew, Jesus loves to grant this access to who? To the little children. The, the little unqualified ones that don't think that they're they don't you know think that they're wise they don't think that they've got it all together they know their need for Christ they know their need for wisdom and man Jesus loves to grant it says come on into a secret place and I'll tell you about it I'll explain it to you now the explanation of the parable we're going to read it 
verse 37 through 40, okay? So get there with me and lean in. Jesus is pulling that curtain back so you can glance into eternity. Verse 37, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, this explanation of the parable could really be broken out into two parts, just to help you. Hopefully, it'll help you understand it better. It can be broken up into two parts. Number one, verse 37 through 39 is sort of a glossary. It's like, it's like a, a, a key to understand the parable. You know, this in the parable means this, and this in the parable means this, and this in the parable. You know, it's like definitions, uh, defining the terms of the parable. It's like a glossary. Um, that's verse 37 through 39. And then, verse 40 through 43, you get the main point. So he leans in, he tells you what the pieces of the parable all mean in the glossary. But then he leans in and says, and here's the main point of the parable. So don't miss verse 40 through 43 as we're going to see the main point here. But let's start with that glossary, okay? So verse 37 through 39, there's seven connections that Jesus makes for us. So he told the parable... But then we get sort of like seven definitions or seven um, uh, connections that you can, oh, you understand the connection now, and you can plug it back into the parable, okay? And what we need to do is we need to look at each one of these seven, <clears throat> these seven definitions or these seven uh, connections here. So let's go through each one of those, okay? Number one, the man who sowed the good seed is who? It says here, the son of man. So think back at your parable. The, you got that man sowing the good seed. The servants didn't know who did it, but he knew who did it. And that man sowing the good seed is the son of man, it says here. Now that's a beautiful title. It's a glorious title, the son of man. This is the title that Jesus uses most to refer to himself. He is the son of man. This title reminds us that Jesus is not only the son of God, divine creator, of all things, sustainer of all life, the Son of God, but He's also the Son of Man. He's God Almighty, the second person of the one true and only God who takes on human flesh. He's the Son of Man so that He can live a perfect human life and die for sinners. You know, God can't die. So Jesus takes on human flesh so He can die for us. He's the Son of Man. Now, probably more significant than that, 
this title, the Son of Man, it draws our attention to an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel, where the promised king, remember how the Old, Old Testament talked about a, a king's coming, a king's coming, a king's coming, and that king is called in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, he's called the Son of Man. Now go back and meditate on that passage, it's beautiful. It says, one like a son of man, he comes before the ancient of days. And to this son of man is given glory and dominion and a kingdom of every nation, tribe, and tongue. All nations will bow down and his kingdom will go on forever and ever into eternity. And so you got this parable that's about, what's the parable about? It's about the kingdom of heaven, right? Well, who's the king? The king is the son of man. The king is Jesus. The king is this one who is sowing good seed into his field. Which brings us to our second connection. What's the field? Number two, the field equals the world. The field equals the world. Okay? Now... Who does the world belong to? Well, look, look back at your parable. Look at verse 24. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. Remember, that man is the son of man. A man who sowed good seed. Where? In verse 24. What does it say? Where? In his field. It's his. Who owns the world? He owns the world. It's his world. It's Jesus' field. It's Jesus' world he owns it now when when will jesus own this world will he own the world after his second coming no he owns the world right now in this moment he owns he owns the world he rules the world now even think about it even while his enemies still roam the weeds are still among the wheat. The sons of the evil one abound. And yet, in the midst of that, he rules the world now in this age. And he'll rule it in the age to come after the harvest. Now, I wanna, I'm, I'm laboring for this point because there's a lot of commentaries you can read. It's an interesting thing. There's a lot of commentaries you can read on this passage that get this really wrong. What they often say is that the field is the church. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying they insinuate that the field is a church. I mean, you read the commentary oftentimes, and it literally says it. The field is the church, which is amazing because you get the scripture that says the field is the world, and they said the field is the church. And they get this wrong, and it has consequences. There's a lot of application problems throughout history. That have happened because they define the field as the church. So let me try to give you an example of a, an application problem if you interpret the field as the church. It would mean then that the church is this mixture of wheat, which we'll find out are lost people in a moment, and wheat, which are saved people. We'll find that out in just a moment. And, and you shouldn't try to remove the weeds from the church. 
lest you disturb the wheat. When I say that, are there other scriptures in your mind that you go, well, that's a problem. That's a problem to interpret that way. To interpret it that way. And I hope you do have other scriptures come to mind because here's the thing. That idea of, of, well, the church is the field, therefore it's a mixed, this mixed thing with the weed and the weeds are growing together. And just don't mess with the weeds. Don't, don't remove the weeds uh, from the church because you might disturb the wheat. That mindset flies into the face of the very nature of, of, of the very nature of the purpose of the local church on this earth. And here's what I mean by that. The scripture teaches that the local church is meant to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. You've got the kingdom of God, and local churches are supposed to be like little outposts scattered throughout the world. And what do we do? We stamp passports. Yep, that's a citizen of the kingdom. Stamp another passport. Yep, that's a citizen of the kingdom. And we stamp these passports by membership in the local church, by baptism, by the Lord's Supper. And when somebody's in the local church and they begin to show themselves to not really be a citizen by their behavior, by their life, then we are to revoke that stamp on that passport. In other words, the local church is supposed to be very much so involved in, in drawing a clear line between this is the people of God and this is the world. That's a duty of the local church. This is the people of God and this is the world. Now, one way you can see this is to compare two things, okay? Now, we've got our parable today, the wheats and the weed together. we got our parable. Now, compare that to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I'm just saying it because I'm, I'm, I know that's familiar to many of you. If it's not familiar to you, 1 Corinthians 5 is a passage where you had a guy that was in that church. A man is in that local church, but he's living an unrepentant life that shows that he's not really a Christian, and the command from Paul is to excommunicate that man, remove that man from the church for the glory of Christ, for the good of the church, for the good of that person's soul, remove him from the church. Pronounce a judgment and remove him. So I want you to try to compare those two thoughts for a minute. If you interpret the field as the church, and therefore just let the weed and wheat grow together and don't remove the weed, don't remove the, the tares. Don't do that. Why? Because it will disturb the wheat. If that's the way you interpret it, how would it line up with 1 Corinthians 5 when it says there is a weed in the midst of the local church. You need to excommunicate. You need to remove this weed. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So how would that line up? Now, there's, a, there's an easy fix to this. Just interpret the parable the way Jesus did. The field is not the church. The field is is the world the field is the world now think about it we can actually this is for you that are familiar with first corinthians 5 we can actually see that in first corinthians 5 do you remember when when paul said this he said i wrote to you not to associate with the sexually immoral the greedy the covetous and he said when i wrote that to you i didn't mean the sexually immoral and the and the greedy and the covetous of this world because then you'd have to go out of the world. Now, why? why? Why is Paul okay with Christians associating with these lost people? Because he believes the parable of the weed, the weeds and the, and the wheat. He knows that in this present age that we're in, the, in this world, the weed and the wheats will grow together. I'm not saying don't associate with them. What Paul is, what Paul is concerned about in 1 Corinthians 5 
is he doesn't want them to associate with somebody that's blurring the lines between who are the people of God and who are the world. Those that are supposedly, those that are, that, that are calling themselves brethren, those that are named brethren, they're in the church, and yet they're living like the world. He says, now at that point, I don't want you to associate with that. So the field here, my point is the field is the world. All right, quick summary before we move to our, to our other ones. Um, so the owner of the field is the son of man, King Jesus. The field that he owns is the whole world. Now, I want you to think about this, the question that could arise. This might help you start to get to the point of what's the point of this parable, okay? Here's a question that could come from that. Um, Jesus, since you are the king, you're the, you're the owner of the whole world, you're the king, you own it all, surely you will immediately stamp out all of evil and destroy your enemies. You'll do that immediately, right? You're the king, you own the world, why are the weeds still here? Why is the evil one still roaming if you're the king and you own the world? And the answer that comes from this parable, because this parable answers it, is that in this age of my rule, in this age, the weed and weed will grow together. My enemies will, will receive patience and mercy, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. But don't worry, the harvest is coming. When all will be set right and the weeds will be set apart from the wheat. Now we'll come back to that question in a moment. All right, number three and number four. Let's take these two together. So the third and fourth definition in our glossary. Number three, the good seed. Remember that? The, the man sowing the good seed in the field. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. You see that? And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So one man sowing the good seed into his field, that's the sons of the kingdom he sowed into his field, to his world. The enemy is sowing weeds. What's that? He's sowing sons of the evil one, sons of the devil into the world. Now, all the world can be placed into one of these two categories. You are either a son of the kingdom or you are a son of the evil one. There is no middle ground. This is not the only place that says this. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who are the children of God? Who are the children of the devil? There's only two categories. You're going to be in one or you're going to be in the other. Everybody fits into one of these categories. So let me say something quickly. All Christians in the room. So if you're here today and praise God, this is most of you. You're in Christ Jesus. You've been born again, made new in Christ. You're a Christian in this room, a real Christian. Have you ever applied this title to yourself right here in this verse? Sons of the kingdom. Have you ever applied that to yourself? I'm a Christian. I'm a son of the kingdom. It's a beautiful title. Um, if we just said citizens of the kingdom, which is other places in the Bible, that would be glorious all by itself. You're a, you're a citizen of the kingdom of another world. You, yeah, you're a citizen uh, here in this country, but you're, you're mainly a citizen of another country, another world, another nation. 
You're a citizen of Jesus' king. That'd be beautiful. But this goes a step further into a more intimate way, something more near and dear to the king's heart. And he says, you're sons of the kingdom. Ever applied that to yourself? I'm a son. I'm a child of the kingdom. Now, to all non-Christians in the room, if you're here and you're not in Christ, maybe you would tell me that. I'm just not in Christ. Or maybe it's just clear by your life. You might profess something, but there's been no heart change. You're not a Christian. Okay? If that's you, let me ask you this question. Have you ever applied this title to yourself? Did you hear what this said? This said the title here is Sons of the Evil One. Or 1 John... Three, I read, says children of the devil, the, the devil. Now, I know that's an uncomfortable way to think about yourself, but it's, but it's necessary. If you're not in Christ, have you ever applied this title to yourself, child of the devil, son of the evil one? Because that's what this verse says right here. Now, this can be very, very deceitful, and I want you to understand this. This can be very, very deceitful. You do not have to be a demonized serial killer to be under the influence of Satan, to be a child of the evil one. In fact, it can look very, very religious. It can look even very, very moral. And yet you're a child of the evil one. I want to read a scripture to you. And I'll try to come right back to our parable. But this is John 8. You don't have to flip there, but please lean in and listen to this. In John chapter 8, verse 41, he's speaking to some very religious people, very moral, at least in the eyes of men, and religious people. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, you, he puts a finger on them, he says, you are doing the works of your father. You are doing the works your father did now in that he's calling the devil their father in that passage and they they hate it i mean he says it and this is the uncomfortable piece they can't stand it listen to what they say in response they say they said to him we were not born of sexual morality they're claiming that jesus was we were born of sexual morality we have one father, even God. And then Jesus said to them, listen to this. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because, here it is. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. You can be very more so deceitful because you can be very moral and very religious looking. And yet, which category do you fit in? Not the sons of God. You fit into the sons of the evil one. It's a very deceitful thing. If you're here today and you're without Jesus, you are of the evil one. If you don't have Christ, you are a child of Satan. There's nowhere around it. You must be adopted into another family. You must be born again. Or the way it says it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, it says, If God perhaps might grant you repentance, that you might come to your senses and come to the knowledge of truth and escape 
This is your salvation. Escape the snare of the devil. Having been taken captive by him to do his will. You need to be brought out. You need to be brought out of the captivity of the evil one. Now, if you are here, again, back to you that are sons of the kingdom. If you're a son of the kingdom, you've got no reason to be cocky about it. If you're, if, you're, if you're a son of the kingdom, if you're a child of God here, you've got no reason to be arrogant about that, right? Because, number one, you once were a weed. You once were a son of the evil one, adopted out of that, born again, praise God. But second is this, how did you become a son of the kingdom? How'd that happen for you? How'd you go from son of the evil one to child of God? How did that go down for you? And I love the visual that we're given here. You were just planted in Jesus' world. No room for boasting. Jesus is the son of man, and he's planting sons of, king, sons of the kingdom into his world, and you're just the planting of Jesus. You can't boast about that. If you, get, if you started, if you tilled up a garden, you planted some seeds, and you had, a, you had a little corn stalk grow up, how silly would it be for the corn to look at you and boast that I'm not one of those weeds? Do you know how silly that is? And it's just as silly for you if you're a son of the kingdom. Jesus planted you there. It's not your own doing. It's Christ and his doing. Now, number five, keep going, working through our glossary here. Number, let's take number five and six together. Okay, number five, the enemy who sowed the weeds, that's the devil. That's the devil. So the enemy equals the devil. Now, number six, the reapers, those that are going to, in the harvest, going to you know, snatch the weeds out and burn them. The reapers, it says here, are... The angels, you see that in this verse? The angels. So you got the devil and you've got the angels here. Now, angels, let's start there. Hebrews 1.14 calls the angels ministering spirits. So angels are spirits. Um, they are ministering spirits. They're, here, here's a verse from Psalm 103, verse 20. Mighty ones who do his word. They're, angels are ministering spirits. They're mighty ones. I mean, we've got record of them destroying whole armies of men in a moment. Mighty ones that do God's word. These are angels. Now, we've got record in the Bible of angels being sent by God as messengers, uh, being sent by God as executioners, being sent by God as protectors. We've got a sweet little record of angels coming to Jesus in his incarnation at his weakest moments. At the beginning of his ministry, when he's fasting 40 days, tempted by the devil, the angels come, ministering spirits. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, if there's any other way, he's sweating drops of blood, angels come and minister to him in his weakest moments. God created them just before they cre he created the earth. In fact, you can go read Job 38, and it says that these angels were shouting for joy when God made the earth. It's a beautiful thing. So these are angels. And they offer to God glorious worship right now. Holy, holy, holy. And they will throughout all of eternity. And, and if you're a son of the kingdom, you'll be alongside angels worshiping King Jesus in heaven. Angels. Now, the devil, 
So the angels are the reapers. The enemy is the devil. The devil, that word means slanderer. He's the slanderer. He's the accuser. He too was an angel created by God. But he rebelled. He took an army of angels with him, which we now call them demons. The devil, the devil is the head of this demonic army. He hates God. He hates Christ. And he hates sons of the kingdom. This is Satan. This is, this is the devil. And like a man, think about it, like a man secretly sowing weeds into another man's wheat field, so the devil looks to wreak havoc in Jesus' world. Our ancient foe, right, seeks to work us woe. He's wreaking havoc. In Jesus's world. Now this parable, and I want us to just think about this for a minute. You got angels, demons, angels, and the devil here. This parable is a reminder for the sons of the kingdom that we have an enemy. Wake up. We have an enemy. And this parable reminds us of that. The enemy is the devil and his. We have an enemy. This, this parable should remind us of the reality of the spiritual realm and the reality of spiritual warfare. We have a real enemy. I hope that this parable would produce in us an awareness, an awareness of our real enemy. Now, as Christians, we absolutely reject the philosophy of materialism. This idea that everything that exists is just matter, or we are just, you know, matter in motion. That's all we are. There is no spiritual realm. None of that exists. It's just, just you know, just matter. That's not this materialism. That's all that there is. We completely reject that. And yet, if we're honest, we are seriously affected by growing up in a world like that. And one of the ways you can see that we are oftentimes affected by materialism, this philosophy, this mindset, we're affected by it by how slow we are to be aware of the satanic realm, the devil, the enemy, these demons, this demonic warfare, spiritual warfare. We're so slow to think in those terms. And I believe one reason for that is we're so affected by this materialistic culture that we're in. Paul said this. Paul said, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes we are ignorant of Satan's schemes. And I pray that this parable and its explanation would bring about in our hearts an awareness of the spiritual realm, of spiritual warfare, and maybe it causes us to never again sit on our sit on our hands as if we're not in a battle and we need to rise up and fight. Now let's go to the last one, number seven. In our glossary it says the harvest is, look at this phrase, the end of the age. So the harvest is the end of the age. Now we see that phrase a, a lot, okay? So, so you got the weeds and the wheat are there, and then, and then uh, just be patient. The harvest is coming where the weeds will be burned and, and, and the wheat will be gathered up into my barn. And he says that harvest, when that goes down... That's the end of the age. Now, Matthew uses that phrase a good, a good bit. In fact, you go down to verse 49. Look at verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil 
from the righteous. Now, that's in another parable, right? The end of the age. Uh, you can keep going in Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, What will be, they asked Jesus, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because those two things are linked. At the end of the age, when's that? When Jesus comes back, his second coming. Jesus, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Or you could go read Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. We're in an age right now, and it has an end. And that end is when Christ comes back. The end of the age. Uh, one more, Matthew 12, verse 32. It says, it uses this phrase, in this age and in the age to come. So do you think in those terms that we live in a certain kind of age, and then guess what? It's going to come to an end, and then there's an age to come. Everybody understands that. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Many people expected, now this is wrong thinking. Many people expected that upon the arrival of the Messiah would be complete dominance in this world. In other words, upon the arrival of the Messiah, what they thought was this, was that he would come and he would completely obliterate his enemies, rise up, you know, raise up his people, and he would dominate this planet. In that moment, the arrival of the Messiah. They weren't thinking rightly about this age. They thought the, the coming of the Messiah the first time would usher in the final age. So think about what that means. That, that his enemies, you know, what do we see happening right now in this age? We see the enemies of Jesus sometimes prospering, but at the very least existing. We see even the devil roaming around like a roaring lion, right? What, what, do, what do we see in this world? But what was expected is that would be done away with. What about the people of God? What do we see in this age? We see the people of God being despised, rejected, persecuted. But that's not what we expected, right? That, that when the Messiah comes, isn't he supposed to do away with all this immediately? And the disciples struggled with this literally right up till the ascension. The disciples struggled with this. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. I mean, Jesus is about to ascend on high. And they say, uh, Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still struggling with this thought right up to the ascension. Now will you do it? Will you do it at this moment? And the problem is, is they had trouble understanding the ages. Right now, brothers and sisters, we are in the gospel age. Right now, we're in the age of weed and wheat living together in this world. Sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. Right now, in this age, Christ is reigning as a patient king. Not willing that any should perish, making way for salvation, not yet destroying his enemies. Right now, the sons of the kingdom are despised and rejected and persecuted, and the king of glory patiently waits in this age. In this age. But the end of this age, according to this parable, is coming. And we will enter in that glorious age to come. And what will happen at the end of this age and the beginning of the next age? The harvest. The harvest is what's going to happen. Christ Jesus will return. 
judgment will take place. Satan and his and his sons will be forever punished. The people of God will be exalted in the harvest. And then we enter into the age to come. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It warns, it says this, that day, that end of the age, the day of the Lord is coming. It's burning like an oven. And when it comes, it says the evildoers and the wicked will be burned up like chaff. But it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And it says you'll leap about like a happy calf. Go read Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. That's the harvest. The harvest, the end of the age. Okay. So we've got our glossary. We got our seven connections, and now you can take those seven connections and go plant them back in to the parable. And it would sound something like this. The owner of the field, the summary statement, the owner of the field is the son of man, Jesus. He's planting good seed in his field. Jesus is planting sons of the kingdom into his world. The enemy is Satan, and he's planting the, his sons, the sons of the devil, into this world. The servants don't know what to do. What do we do about this? Jesus says, Patience for now in this age, weed and we will grow together. But when the harvest comes, it'll all be sorted out. The weeds will be burned and the wheat will be gathered into my barn. In other words, the reapers, I'm going to send the angels and the sons of the wicked one will be tossed into hell. But the righteous will have eternal life. Now we need to get to the main point of this parable. What is the main point of this parable? Now, here's what happens, and don't miss this, okay? Very important. We've just been given the glossary, and right after that, in verse 40 through 43, these four verses, 40, 41, 42, 43, these verses, we're given the main thrust, the main point of this parable. And I want you to notice, just look at it, notice what it's all about, and notice what it's not about. Look at verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's the harvest, right? That's the focus, the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. So what's the focus? The focus is not on what so many people do with this parable, where they start focusing on this gospel age. Okay, so, you know, he told the servants, uh, don't, root up the, don't root up the weeds lest you disturb the wheat. Don't do that just yet. And people focus all of their attention right there so often when they read this parable. And what I'm telling you is Jesus doesn't even mention that. He focuses all his attention on the harvest, the end of the age, your eschatology, the way it's all going to go down before that age to come. That's where his focus is, is on end times, the end of this age. Now, I want you to think about this because most people, now, why would this be his main point? Why would this be his main point? Well, many people have those questions, right? Wait a minute, if you're the king of the world, if you own it all, 
Why does your enemy still prosper? Why do your people still suffer? And here comes this parable that focuses on, listen, be patient. The harvest is coming. The end of the age. End times are coming. And it'll all be sorted out. And that's the, that's the push of this parable. Kind of like, like when you go, if you go back and read uh, Psalm 73. Many of you probably remember Psalm 73. Where the guy's in distress because the, the, the enemies and the ungodly and the wicked, they're prospering God. Why are they prospering God? And then at the end of Psalm 73, it says, And then I went into the sanctuary, and God showed me their end. God showed me their end. And that's what this parable, that's the main point. It's what it's supposed to do, that as you have those questions about why do the weeds and the wheat grow together in this age, listen, the harvest is coming. Understand the end. Understand the end. That's the main point of this parable. So let's, let's close by focusing our attention on that main point on the harvest, these last uh, four verses. And listen, Lee, strive, you know, again, Jesus, is, he's lifting the curtain so you can see eternity. Strive to see this. Even if something is common to you, you, you need it again. You need, to, you need to understand. You need to have eternity just laid upon you like a, like a heavy weight on your heart. You need that. And when you have that, it changes everything. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill that said, you know, five seconds into eternity. You wish you prayed more. You wish you read your Bible more. You, you know, and he goes on. You wish you to preach the gospel more. Just five seconds into eternity. Well, we don't need five seconds into eternity. We could get a glimpse of it right here. So let eternity land on your heart in a way that you, you understand it. You think about it. And it puts your life into perspective. Now, these last four verses, they can be put into two categories. One is the final destruction of the wicked. That's verse 40 through 42. And two, the final state of the righteous. And that's in verse 43. Now let's close by looking at these two, these two uh, categories here. So the final destruction of the wicked, verse 40 through 42. How does this passage, verse 40 through 42, how does it describe the weeds, the, the sons of the evil one? How does it describe them? And you look at it right here. In verse 41, it says, all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Who are the weeds? All causes of sin and lawbreakers. Who are the sons of the evil one? All causes of sin and lawbreakers. This is the, this is the description of humanity. Lawbreakers and sin causers. These are the weeds. Now, we all know this from experience because every single one of us have broken God's law, caused people to sin. We brought sin into this world. All of us have done that. We've all been weeds. Now, some people remain there and they enter into destruction at the harvest, but some people are born again to be sons of the kingdom. So this says that there's a time coming, verse 41, when all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, look at it. It says they will be gathered out of his kingdom. Now, if you're still in that weed category, that lawbreaker category, then that's terrifying. But that's a glorious truth if you think about God's kingdom. All of it. All sin. Think about the pain and the sorrow and the death and the destruction. All that sin produces. Think about that. And all of it's ripped out. 
The angels are just going to rip it right out. And none of that will be in the kingdom of Christ. It'll be removed. And Jesus' kingdom will be fullness of joy. The highest heights of pleasure. No tears of sorrow. No pain. No death. It's Christ's kingdom. It's beautiful. But what will be the final state of the wicked? Now, we're given three phrases in verse 40 through 42. Three little phrases that tell us what the, what the state of the wicked will be. Lean in and understand God's word. Number one, verse 40 says they will be burned with fire. Hell, brother, listen to me. Hell is a burning fire. And, and that ain't no joke. It's described as being burned with fire. Now, probably one of the most uncomfortable things to do is to force yourself to think on the reality of hell. And yet, you must. It's necessary to do so. William Tyndale was a man that translated the scriptures into the English language, and he was burned alive for doing it. Can you imagine the pain of being tied to that post and the flames start to peel back the, the outer layers of your skin. Can you imagine that agony? And yet in William Tyndale's agony, there was relief. And the relief came with death. Here's the scary thing about hell. It's the agony and the burnings of fire and it never ends. There's no hope of death. There's no hope of relief whatsoever. It's just burning flames forever. It's so uncomfortable to think about, but we must think about the eternal state of the wicked. The prophet Isaiah, he calls hell everlasting burnings. Other places in the Gospel of Matthew, it calls, it calls hell eternal fire. One place says everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels, the devil and his demons will be cast there and men also will be cast into this burning lake of fire, which is what it says in Revelation 20 verse 10. It calls hell the lake of fire and it describes it as torment day and night forever and ever. You will never find not even a millisecond of relief in hell. Now the second phrase you see it in verse 42. It says this is what the angels will do. We'll throw them into the fiery furnace. Throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, why must they be thrown? Because they will not go there willingly. Many say they will, but when it comes down to it, they will not go to this fiery furnace willingly. They will be thrown there. There's going to come a moment at Christ's return, and, and every single person will have this wake-up moment, this, this terrifying wake-up moment that I have made a mistake. Revelation 1-7 says the Son of Man is going to come, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And it says, and the nations will mourn. Why are they mourning? Why are, they, why are they weeping? Why are they crying? Because every man is going to have this wake-up moment that, oh no, I don't want to go there. They're going to resist it with everything they have. 
Revelation 6, the end of Revelation 6, it says that the wrath of Jesus comes. And when that wrath comes, it says men are going to resist. They're going to hide themselves behind rocks. Oh, God, just let the rocks follow me and hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. They're going to resist. They're going to claw. They're going to do whatever they can do to keep themselves out of that horrible place. And yet they will be thrown there. Revelation 20 says, cast into the lake of burning fire. People joke about being excited to go to hell. Can't wait to get there and have a little fun. And yet that's not going to happen. They are going to desperately desire to get out. You remember the little story Jesus told in Luke 16 of that rich man that thought he had it all together in this life and then next thing you know he's burning in hell. He's tormented in hell. That man longed to get out. He pleaded, can I just get a drop, one little drop of water on my tongue? It's so terrible that one drop of water on his tongue would feel like relief to him, and yet he's denied even that. Even that, forever and ever, and on it goes. It says here, the fiery furnace. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. I can't help, to, you know, probably like you too. When I hear fiery furnace, I think of shattering me, shaking Abednego, right? And they were cast into that fiery furnace. Can you imagine the pain of that being the way you die? And yet them, they had that fourth man in the fire. They were protected from any pain. They were protected by the gracious presence of God with them in that place no pain no burning this this will happen at the harvest people will be cast into the fiery furnace and they will not have the gracious presence of Christ they'll feel every ounce of pain and more and then the last phrase here says in that place it's verse 42 in that place there will be weeping in gnashing of teeth, weeping. In hell, there will be sorrow, horrible remembrance, horrible sorrow in hell. There is no depression on earth that compares to the depths of depression that will be there in hell. Sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, no hope, no way out forever. And it says gnashing of teeth. And you can see the picture, right, of the pain, the, the gnashing of your teeth and pain and even, and even anger. There's no hurt on earth that hurts like hell. There's no pain like that. So if you're here today and you're a non-Christian, and I was talking to you earlier, you're not in Christ. Based off this reality, I would beg you. To, there's a little phrase in the Bible that says, flee from the wrath to come. I beg you to flee from the wrath to come. To, to run from it. This is a horrible reality that we get numb to it. You don't want to think about it. It's so uncomfortable. Listen to me. Flee. Flee from hell. Flee from the wrath to come. If you just had just a second, just a moment, and God allowed you to peer into hell, and you just got to see it, just for a second and just feel it for just a, just a split second. If you just had that, you would respond in one of two ways. Either you would hate God more than you already do because in pride you say, I don't deserve that. 
Or you know, man, I deserve every ounce of that punishment. And you would flee. You would run. You would desperately get yourself out of hell. And I'm here to tell you that the only way out is Christ Jesus the Savior. Jesus died on a cross. All that hell and all that death and all that punishment, he took it for you. And he's your only way. That if you put your hope in Christ who died, you can have eternal life. Rescue from hell. Rescue from the wrath to come. All Christians in the room, we're commanded in Ephesians 2.12 to remember. You, you were on the doorsteps. Every single one of us. We were on the door, not just knocking at the door, on the doorsteps. Just in a moment, our life could be taken away and we'd burn in hell forever. That man from Luke 16, he's still there. Jesus talked about him 2,000 years ago. He's burning in hell now. Christian, that could, be, that could be us so easily. But you've been rescued. Not given what you deserve. Seated at the table where you don't belong. Now, last thing here. The final state of the righteous. Verse 43. It says, then the, then the righteous, or after this harvest, then the righteous will shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us are, are, are sin causers, as it says here. So how could Christians be called righteous? Did you catch that? The wheat, the sons of the kingdom, are called righteous. How can lawbreakers like us, unrighteous people like us, be called righteous? Well, I'll explain it with my favorite gospel verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It said, God made him who knew no sin. He's the sinless one. He's the righteous one. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. him. Did you hear the swap there? That here we are, sinful and unrighteous. He's the only righteous one. And he takes our unrighteousness, our sin, all to himself to be punished for it. And then not only that, not only are we rescued from hell, not only are we saved from our sin, but he takes his righteousness and he plants it on us so that we stand in the day of judgment and we wear the righteous garments of Jesus Christ. So, in this gospel age, Christians are despised, rejected, and persecuted. But this verse that we just read says, after the harvest, Christians are going to be in a kingdom. And it says here that the owner of it is their father. <laughs> they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Despised on this earth, just... just no, you know, no, nothing Christian, insignificant Christians here. And yet this says but after the harvest that we're going to be in our father's kingdom and we'll be shining like the sun. Which is likely a reference to Daniel chapter 12. And we'll close with this. We'll end here. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Speaking about that harvest to come. And many... Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, dead. He 
asleep in the dust of the earth. When Christ returns, it says, they shall awake. Some to everlasting life. That's the wheat, the sons of the kingdom. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the weeds. And those who are wise, beautiful thought, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a sweet thought. Father, thank you again for your word and letting us read it and meditate here. And I pray, God, that you would let eternity, let it be at the forefront of our minds, Lord. Let it be the obsession of our heart. And God, as eternity is right before our eyes, I pray, Lord, it would affect our lives. The way we, God, change the way, the way we pursue holiness, the way we seek you, the way we seek the things that are going to last for eternity, the way we preach your gospel and urge people to be saved from the wrath to come. God, I pray that you would, you would grow us in all these ways, Lord, as eternity is put right in front of us. Thank you for your help and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.